everyone, and welcome to After Alexander, episode 5, Third Time Lucky. So, I hope you enjoyed our little detour into Indian history last time. There were still some things that I haven't mentioned, such as how the Greeks viewed India and what they believed its culture to be. However, I'm going to save that for when we actually get to the stage where Seleucus is interfering in Indian politics. At the time of the Third War of the Diadochoi, this is not something he's worrying about. And with that, last time in our narrative, we left Seleucus winging his sad way towards Ptolemy. After Eumenes had died in January 315 BCE, Antigonus's regent-style posturing had caused Seleucus, presumably along with his family, to flee westwards fearing for his life. He chose against seeking refuge in Cassander's realms in Macedon, and instead headed for Ptolemy's court in Egypt. Ptolemy was not a king yet, as indeed were none of the satraps under Alexander IV, but he did rule over a fabulously wealthy province. In fact, while Alexander the Great was alive, he had initially divided Egypt up between several people to avoid any one magnate having power over the entire province. Ptolemy had managed to expel Alexander's chosen satrap in the region and establish himself after Alexander's death, expanding Egypt's influence over both Cyrenaica to the west and Syria to the northeast. Now, this was crucial for Egypt's prosperity, as the region of Syria could act as a shield, if Egypt controlled the funnel of territory into Egypt itself, it could protect itself. After all, consider that, in short succession over the course of 30 years, there have been three invasions of Egypt from this direction. First, there have been Artaxerxes III of Persia, then Alexander himself, and finally the ultimately doomed invasion by Perdiccas. Ptolemy's acquisition of Syria shows that he'd taken these history lessons on board and was trying to prevent the same thing happening again. Seleucus managed to convince Ptolemy of the threat that Antigonus posed. After all, you have to consider it from Ptolemy's point of view. Under the administration of Antipater and the other figurehead regents, which might generously be called lax, Ptolemy had essentially been allowed to do his own thing. If Antigonus really did have empire-wide motives, as Seleucus stressed he did, it would mean that imperial interference would be back in Egypt again, which Ptolemy really didn't want. Quite apart from anything else, there was also the territorial side of things. Syria was a vulnerable region, and there was not much standing in Antigonus's way should he choose to take it, which would leave Egypt itself vulnerable. Letters were accordingly sent out by Seleucus to Cassander over in Macedon, and a man called Lysimachus in Thrace, to ask for an alliance against this new threat. However, the ships carrying these messages were Ptolemy's, thereby firmly linking him with the message Seleucus was now sending out into the eastern Mediterranean. Now, Antigonus would really not have wanted this, but he could have predicted that this was the kind of trouble Seleucus was going to cause. Pretty much as soon as he worked out where Seleucus would go, he'd sent a delegation to the western leaders imploring them to remain on good terms with him. He might especially have relied on Cassander, given that for reasons we won't go into here, Cassander pretty much owed his position in Macedon proper to Antigonus. However, his conduct on his way west didn't exactly convince anyone that he didn't pose a threat. Ideally, you might think he needed to convince Cassander, Lysimachus and Ptolemy that he was not a danger to their position. 
Instead, while heading west, he decided to install a new satrap in Babylon. Once he reached Cilicia in the southeast of Anatolia, around about November of 315 BCE, he seized money stored at the city of Kyinda, which would have been further evidence to the three western leaders of his arbitrary and empire-wide ambition. Exactly the wrong message to send out, in other words. Seleucus, Cassander, Ptolemy and Lysimachus sent a delegation to Antigonus around November or December 315 to try and test the waters. They proposed that Antigonus's conquest and the treasure he'd amassed should be divided up. Lysimachus would gain control of the Anatolian region of the Hellespont, Cassander would get Cappadocia among others, Seleucus should be returned to Babylon, and Ptolemy would be given northern Syria, in addition to the parts of it he already controlled. This treaty would leave Antigonus with a series of disparate, unconnected lands in Phrygia, Iran, and Cilicia. It's worth noting at this point that the question of Antigonus's meddling with the eastern satrapies was essentially ignored, so his replacements there seem to have been accepted. This was essentially an ultimatum. If Antigonus agreed, his political power on imperial scale would be broken, leaving him essentially reduced to the satrap of Phrygia again, as he was originally after the meeting of Triparadisus in 320 BCE. A new meeting like Triparadisus could then be organised, and the empire might continue to exist in its fragile state for a little longer. If he refused, Seleucus's allegations of his greater ambition and his threat would be laid bare for all to see. As you would no doubt expect, Antigonus refused. However, this would only have become known to the new coalition around the new year of 314, meaning that no military moves could yet be made. It was winter, after all. However, by the spring of 314, the third war of the successors was on. In part two, we'll discuss the actual action of the war and how Seleucus fared dur during it. That's part two, after the music. See you then. The Third War of the Diadochoi really begins after the winter is over, as with most ancient conflicts. I'm going to say now that I'm going to try and keep the story specific to Seleucus, as keeping track of hundreds of armed bands, generals, names and dates is probably not what most people are here for. With that in mind, let's follow Seleucus's journey through the action. Antigonus managed to occupy most of the ports of Syria except for Tyre, where Ptolemy's garrison remained defiant. So, accordingly, he headed south in 314 to besiege the city. At the same time, he began to construct a fleet. His previous fleet had been destroyed or taken by Ptolemy sometime between 317 and his return into northern Syria. Antigonus would maintain the siege from the spring of 314 until the summer of 313 BCE, perhaps due to the resupply efforts of Seleucus early on in the siege. This would likely have been a double insult, as it's worth noting that the ships Seleucus was using to travel to Tyre were most likely the very same ones that had been stolen from Antigonus and reused by Ptolemy. Seleucus was, incidentally, made Ptolemy's naval commander in the eastern Mediterranean. After taunting Antigonus's men for a bit, he sailed on into the Aegean Sea, with a presumable pit stop in Cyprus along the way. 
Seleucus is known to have laid siege to the Ionian city of Erythrae, but we don't really know the details. Now, for those of you who don't remember, Ionia was the coastal Anatolian region facing mainland Greece, where the revolt started all the way back when the Persian Empire still existed. In terms of the conflict, however, Antigonus acted quickly. One of the first things he managed to arrange at the political level was the transfer of the title of regent from Polypercon to himself. This effectively nullified the complaints levelled by the Western coalition. After all, didn't the regent have the power to do what he liked with the satraps? He also accused Cassander of keeping the king and his mother hostage. At the time, as a result of all the political intrigue of the Second War of the Diadochoi, Cassander was in possession of both Alexander IV and Roxanne. Antigonus now more or less demanded that Cassander surrender the infant king, now roughly eleven years old or thereabouts, into his custody. Finally, he organised a meeting of his confidants and soldiers, which he billed as an update of the agreement at Triparadasus, though you can imagine how fair and even-handed this was probably going to be. This meeting more or less sanctioned all of Antigonus's actions since that time, taking a sledgehammer to the accusations made by men such as Seleucus. Now, there is an element of Antigonus allowing Antigonus to get away with it at this point, but he was at least going through the motions the way he was supposed to. Like Perdiccas, Antigonus was using the army, regency, and an assembly in the form of this meeting to add legitimacy to his power. In that vein, he also announced that the Greek cities were to be autonomous and not under the jurisdiction of any power. This was aimed at Cassander, who was keen to exercise control over mainland Greece in his capacity as ruler over Macedon proper. As you will no doubt know from discussions of ancient Greek history, Greek city-states have been more or less independent for hundreds of years, and they liked it that way. This declaration by Antigonus thereby swung the balance in Greece into his favour, and undermined the authority of both Ptolemy in Cyrenaica and Cassander in the Greek heartland, as both of these regions contained Greek cities, which the regions of Macedon himself had just declared to be autonomous. This upset the balance of power within their respective realms. In fact, Ptolemy would be forced to issue a similar edict late in 313 BCE, although it was only ever paid lip service. Seleucus, meanwhile, was fighting in Cyprus, which had gone over to Antigonus early on in the conflict. He took the cities of Lapathos and Chironea, while bringing the rulers of Marion and Amathos into the alliance. Despite this, however, Antigonus eventually effectively managed to bottle Ptolemy up in Egypt itself, with his new fleet, the masters of the Mediterranean. Antigonus was so confident in Ptolemy's helplessness, in fact, that he changed his focus and headed north, crossing the Taurus Mountains into Anatolia in the winter of 313 and 312 BCE. Cassander, in fact, eventually met Antigonus at the Hellespont to discuss peace terms, and it was only the intervention of Ptolemy and Lysimachus renewing their alliance which encouraged him to carry on the struggle. Ptolemy, however, slowly rebuilt his strength. He put down a rebellion in Cyrene which had taken his proclamation of autonomy at face value. Added to this, Cyprus was essentially regained, although there was one incident in which the city of Marion was sacked for trying to contact Antigonus. This control of Cyprus allowed him to conduct raids into Syria and Cilicia. His general Nicocreon also provoked Antigonus's son Demetrius, then in his early twenties, by sacking the city of Malos nearby and fleeing before Demetrius could visit revenge on him. 
We're going to have to discuss him a bit more at this point, as his character is about to become relevant in the conflict. Demetrius was, namely, a hot-headed and impulsive individual. Ptolemy may well have been convinced by his character that risking a pitched battle at some point to try and reclaim South Syria was worth the gamble, in a way that it simply wouldn't have been with Antigonus. Seleucus, for his part, encouraged this offensive strategy. As with the example we discussed a moment ago, there had been more than one meeting between one of the Alliance members and Antigonus. This would have worried Seleucus, as it gave an inclination that his allies were about to seek peace terms. And if Ptolemy didn't help him regain a satrapy of his own, he would be doomed to play second fiddle to the ruler of Egypt his whole life. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given his character, this was not something he was content to do. So, he would have to encourage Ptolemy to seek an offensive strategy against Antigonus for his own sake. Eventually, though, a battle was forced at Gaza. On the one side, we have Demetrius and a series of generals his father Antigonus had employed in an attempt to restrain him. Crucially for Seleucus, this included Python, a replacement satrap of Babylon, which meant that there was functionally no one in control of his former province at the time. On the other side, we have Ptolemy and Seleucus. There were no reinforcements available to Demetrius that were any nearer than Anatolia, meaning there was an opportunity here to do some serious damage. If Ptolemy and Seleucus won, there would be no help on the way. I'm not going to go into it here for the sake of time, but the upshot is that the Battle of Gaza in the winter of 312-311 was a victory for Ptolemy. In the wake of all this, Seleucus was given an army by Ptolemy and used them to do what he would have dreamed of, take back Babylon. Babylon was wealthy, second only to Egypt, as we said before, and at a central location within the empire. Now, I'm speculating here, but this means that, although it may have been more exposed than Egypt, it would likely have been also have been an ideal place from which to play havoc with Antigonus's strategy, which may be why Ptolemy sent him back there. Accordingly, Seleucus likely arrived in Babylon around April 311 BCE, at the start of the Babylonian year, and retook the province. He was proclaimed as satrap again on the 1st of June, 311 BCE. After over three years in exile, Seleucus the satrap was back. This is, with hindsight, a major step on Seleucus's journey through life. After this point, he will never again be evicted from Babylon. It also marks the start of the Seleucid era, with the year 311 BCE being used as the first regnal year of Seleucus. There will also be a different regnal year used after he officially takes power as king a few years from now, but in the eyes of the Babylonians, this re-entry into the city marks the start of the era. A peace settlement was eventually agreed in the winter of 311 and 310 BCE. Ptolemy and Lysimachus's territories were confirmed, Cassander and Antigonus retained ultimate command in their respective spheres of Europe and Asia, while the autonomy of the Greek city-states was recognised by all parties involved. And let's face it, Antigonus had pretty much let that genie out of the bottle by now. But there was trouble on the horizon. As we discussed, Alexander IV was fast approaching majority. The settlement after the war also agreed that Alexander IV would become sole ruler when he attained his majority in 305 BCE. This effectively made the empire a ticking time bomb from the perspective of the satraps, where once the king's age of majority had seemed a dim and distant threat, now it was looming ever closer. 
power might just be about to be wrested from all of their hands. Next time, then, we'll discuss the situation of Argead royal family politics at around 310 BCE, before moving on to, unfortunately, say goodbye to the last branch of the Macedonian line of kings, and thereby effectively the last hope for a united empire. Thanks for listening, as always. I'm aware that I've likely drastically oversimplified this conflict, but for our purposes it's not worth getting bogged down in the details of every party in the conflict. And after all, for our narrative, the main upshot was Seleucus getting Babylon back. Feel free to contact us in the meantime at afteralexpod at gmail.com. Until next time, have a great week everyone. Thank you.